different kind of different kind of sermon today. This is not based on the on the text in your bulletin, although we will refer to it. This is actually based on a New York Times article from uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, April the twentieth, twenty nineteen, and uh, the writer of the column is a regular. A religion a commentator for the New York Times, and uh, last year he interviewed Timothy Keller, and that was in the Times. Beautiful article by uh, Timothy Keller, longtime evangelical pastor, one of the ten greatest preachers in the United States, and he was retiring, and so that article was in the paper. The year before, he interviewed uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, former president of the United States, and a wonderful Christian testimony, and uh, interviewed Carter on his views on uh, Christ and on, on God. And that was also a wonderful article. And so this year, I was looking forward to who he would interview this year. And this year, he interviewed the president of Union Seminary. And Union Seminary is in Manhattan, and it is connected to Columbia University, and is one of the significant seminaries in the world uh, for training Christian, Christian leaders, at least it has been in the past. And so he interviewed the president of the uh, seminary. I thought I would read that article with you and talk about it and uh, respond to what she has to say by looking in the scriptures. Uh, her name is Serene Jones. She's a Protestant minister the president of Union Theological Seminary. And the writer of the article, is his name is Nicholas Kristoff, and he is a regular opinion columnist in the New York Times. Happy Easter, Reverend Jones. To start, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? And this is the columnist. The columnist says, I have problems with that. So do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that. Jones responds, when you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. In other words, there is no literal flesh and blood resurrection. That's what she says. And she says it's proven by Mark. And I want to look at Mark. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Mark. If you don't, don't worry, I'll read it. And as you look at the end of Mark, you have verses 9 through 20. And those verses are set aside with a note. And the note will say something like this. Um, well, here's what mine says. Some manuscripts end the book with chapter 16, verse 8. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. One Latin manuscript adds, adds after verse 18 the following, a short ending. 
Other manuscripts include this same wording after verse 8, then continue with verses 9 through 20. Most scholars think verses 9 through 20 should not be in your Bible. That's most scholars. I suspect they shouldn't be in your Bible as well. Okay, now, that means the Gospel of Mark ends with verse 8. Notice how verse 8 ends. They went out and fled from the tomb, um, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. End of the gospel. So there are no appearances of Jesus Christ. That's what um, Reverend Jones is referring to when she says that in the resurrection story of Mark, there is just an empty tomb. There's no resurrection. Now, I want to read with you what Mark has to say in other parts of his gospel. So for instance, verse 6 says this, They come to the tomb, the women come to the tomb early on that Sunday morning looking for the body of Jesus. The stone is rolled away. They go in. Jesus is not there. There is a young man there. And notice, the young man said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, you don't have an appearance of Jesus, but you have an angel telling you Jesus is risen and he's going to show up and see you. Chapter 14 and verse 58. This is Jesus' trial. And they're accusing Jesus. And here's what one of the witnesses say. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, I think that's a reference to the resurrection, but it's veiled. Verse 27 of chapter 14. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. After I am raised up. Chapter 10, verse 33. I hope you get the idea of what's happening. Jesus foretells his death. And my Bible says Jesus foretells his death a third time. Jesus says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Chapter 9 and verse 30. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Chapter 9 and verse 9. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen, the transfiguration, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now listen, that's just from the Gospel of Mark. Um, when, when Reverend Jones says, do you think of the Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection, when she says, well, when you look in Mark, there's no resurrection story, just an empty tomb. I go, which Mark are you reading? Now, by the way, she's not the only scholar who says that. Many say that. It's like anything I can find in the Bible to discredit the Bible, we jump on that. That must be true. But anything that supports traditional Christianity is discarded. Okay. So here's his next question. Without a physical res oh, no, oh by, by the way, don't, don't get me wrong. When we're talking about Mark, what I think happened, this is just what I think happened with Mark. The ending was either lost, the original ending was lost, or Mark ended at 16, verse 8. And a scribe came along, and he read that, and he goes, I've got three other Gospels. They have a different ending. So he takes information from the other Gospels, and he writes an ending which he thinks has been lost, and he puts that on the end of Mark, and that's where that long ending comes from. That's just what I think. Okay, that's, that's my supposition. Uh, because when you had scrolls or when you had books in the ancient world, it was always the very end that was lost first. And so if you were a scribe and you picked up an old manuscript and it seemed like it shouldn't end right there, you would automatically think, well, that's just because the, the last half page has been lost. And it, so you look for that. Anyway, that's just what I think. The only way we'll know for sure and I hope, I hope this happens, is if we find more ancient copies of Mark. We have very few ancient copies of Mark. They do not have the longer ending. Now, by the way, the early church knew about this. And the early church fathers would say, I have got five manuscripts. I've seen five manuscripts that have the longer ending, and I've seen five manuscripts that don't have that ending. So they were talking about it even back in three and 400 A.D. Second question he asks, without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we're left with just the crucifixion? That's a good question. Here's what she says about the crucifixion. Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. Okay, crucifixion is not something God is doing. That's what she's saying. The pervasive idea of an abusive God father who sends his own son to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. Now this is, I call this liberal Christianity, and this is where liberal Christianity is at now. They think of the cross as an abusive father. And that would be child abuse to put your son on the cross. 
And so we don't want to believe in child abuse. So God has nothing to do with that. Crucifixion is not something God is orchestrating from upstairs. Um, she just destroyed John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That's God orchestrating it from upstairs and sending his son into the world. Or here's what the, uh, here's what the apostle said in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, this is Peter on Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, did you hear that? Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is orchestrating this from upstairs. And my response to an abusive Godfather who sends his son to the cross has not reckoned with Jesus Christ being God himself. This is not a, a 12-year-old kid that you're sending into the world to go to the cross. This is very God himself who has taken on, taken on human flesh. That's who is going to the cross. Willingly and deliberately in cooperation with the Father's plan. So he goes, next question. You alluded to child abuse. So how do we reconcile an omnipotent, omniscient God with evil and suffering? Now, by the way, that's a huge question. If God is all-powerful, omnipotent, if God is all-knowing, omniscient, how could he let any bad things happen and how could he let his children suffer or allow any suffering? Um, here's the answer. At the heart of faith is mystery. God is beyond our knowing. He's not a being or an essence or an object. I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent, omniscient being. That's a fabrication of Roman juridical theory and Greek mythology. That's not the God of Easter. The God of Easter is vulnerable, is connected to the world in profound ways that don't involve manipulating the world, but constantly inviting us into love, justice, mercy. Um, it's unbelievable, the paragraph. So, God is not a being, an essence, or an object. That is any kind of theistic belief. In other words, she doesn't believe in God at all. There's no God. God is the love of the universe kind of reaching out to us. It's not a person, not a being. 
right? You, you, I, I, I almost can't believe it. But um, One of the reasons why I put the passage that was in the bulletin in is uh, she says, and I've, I've read this many other places, that the God we believe in comes from the Romans and the Greeks. That's commonly taught. That's why I put Psalms written by a Jew before the Romans and the Greeks. And you know, that's a God who is all-powerful, who listens to our prayers, and people ask him to act, who brings his people out of Egypt, so he's manipulating the world, he's at work in the world, and he's a person. That doesn't come from the Romans and the Greeks. Okay, next question. Now, by the way, no, well, I'll get, I'll get to that. Isn't Christianity without a phys physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is about love, that's less religion, more philosophy. Here's her answer. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than, they, than they, they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? I said they won't. What then... What would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? I said, yes. She says, no, faith is stronger than that. Here's what, here's what Paul writes. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, if his body's still in the tomb, here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified that God, if he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if Christ didn't raise from the dead, we're most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. Okay, next question. What about other miracles of the New Testament? Say the virgin birth. Her answer. I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. It has nothing to do with Jesus' message. So in other words, separate, you separate all the facts and the history of Jesus' life from his message. We can accept some of the things that Jesus says. We just can't accept anything that Jesus is said to have done. 
the virgin birth, now listen to this sentence, the virgin birth only becomes important if you have a theology in which, sec- in which sexuality is considered sinful. It also promotes this notion that the pure, untouched female body is the best body. And that idea has led to centuries of oppressing women. And that's where she ends her statement on the virgin birth. So in other words, the virgin birth was only invented because they had an idea that sexuality, women's bodies should be pure. And they were doing this and that, those kind of ideas have actually abused women for centuries. It's led to the suppression of women. Um, my answer, of course, is that we don't believe it's just young women outside of marriage who should be pure and chaste. We believe that for men, too. Next question. Prayer is efficacious in the sense of making us feel better. But do you believe it is efficacious in curing cancer? In other words, should you pray for things and will God answer you? I don't believe in a God who, because of prayer, would decide to cure your mother's cancer, but not cure the mother of your unpraying neighbor. We can't manipulate God like that. Unbelievable statements. You can't ask God to do anything for you because that's manipulation of God. Uh, James chapter 5. Here's what James writes. By the way, James was known as a man of prayer, and they used to call him camel knees because he prayed so much that he had calluses on his knees from kneeling. And James says this, verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three months Three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Um, Keep praying. (laughs) It's not manipulation of God. Next question. What happens when I die? Her answer. I don't know. There There may be something... There may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. People who behave well in this life only to achieve an afterlife, that's a faith driven by a selfish motive. I'm going to be good so God would reward me with a stick of candy candy called heaven. For me, living a life of love is driven by the simple fact that love is true. Um, first of all, I'm surprised that there may be something, there may, may, may be nothing. I don't know what's going to happen when people die. The Apostle Paul, when he was uh, in prison thinking he was going to die, says, 
for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes, I don't know what's going to happen, but for me to, re- for me to remain is good for you, and for me to de- die and depart is to be with Christ with regard to reward in heaven. Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Um, The first thought I had was doing good to achieve reward from God. She calls it selfish. And I wondered, would she still work for the seminary if she did not receive a paycheck? Um, Here's the last question. Um, I've asked this of other interviews, interviewees in this religion series. For someone like myself who is drawn to Jesus' teaching but doesn't believe in the virgin birth or the physical resurrection, what am I? Am I a Christian? Her answer. Well, you sound an awful lot like me and I'm a Christian minister. That's the answer. Um, I wanted to read this article with you and talk about it. Liberal Christianity, I used to think, was a branch of Christianity. This is not Christianity at all. This has jettisoned almost everything about the faith. Almost everything. Everything with regard to God. He's not a being. He doesn't work in the world. He doesn't manipulate the world. He doesn't touch it in any way. He doesn't help us in any way. He doesn't answer prayer. He didn't send Jesus Christ into this world to save people. Um, Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins. Now, by the way, that is broad. All liberal Christians believe that. Jesus does not die on the cross for your sins. He just dies as a good example. He did not rise from the dead. This is not Christianity. It's a whole new religion. But notice, it presents itself as Christianity. Am I a Christian? Well, I'm a Christian minister and you sound like me. (laughs) So of course you're a Christian. So I want to finish with what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. I think being saved means being a Christian. That's what makes you a Christian. You're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. That's what it means to be a Christian. To accept the statement of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And the third day he rose again. Reverend Jones um, is quite upset because her church, the Presbyterian church, is in decline. And not only is the church in great decline, they are not sending many ministers to be trained in the seminary anymore. And she can't figure it out. (laughs) Why are we in decline, and why can't we get more ministers to come and train to be preachers of Christianity? But the worst part is when when someone asks you, Am I a Christian? And you can't even tell them what the Bible says to them about how to be a Christian. 